legends, you're listening to the Off-Road Performance Coach Podcast. If you want to be a beast on and off the dirt bike, you have come to the right place. All I ask from you is if you gain some value out of today's episode, please give it a share and tag me on your socials or your Insta story. I'd be super grateful if you'd share the love. Let's get stuck straight into today's episode. Hello, podcast legends. We are back on. Been a little bit of a hiatus. Sorry on the podcast episodes. Had a bit of a, I guess, a come down after running the GNCC around, I suppose you would say. So back into a normal routine now, which I'm pretty stoked about. Uh, we're at the start of September, so put out the call last week for some podcast questions, listener Q&A podcast questions, so we're going to run through them today. We've got six or seven really good questions here, training-related, um, racing-related, and one at the end that's GNCC-related. So, we'll get stuck straight into them. First question is, what are the benefits of nose breathing and do you have any tips to maintain nose breathing when riding? So, this is a great question. Nose breathing, again, anyone that's probably listened to a few podcasts or done any sort of, I guess, research on endurance training, nose breathing's a, a, I guess, a what would you say? It's like a flavor of the month thing or has been for the last year or so that people like to tout as having astronomically amazing benefits for us. So there is definitely benefits to nose breathing and I prescribe it at times for my clients. I I normally just use it to when I want someone to like when the goal of a session is to truly maintain an aerobic effort, so a low intensity aerobic effort where our heart rate would ideally be in that zone two area, I will often cue a client to use nose breathing in that situation because most people, when they nose breathe, they're going to be limited by the intensity that they can maintain. So by nose breathing, It's just a tool you can use or a constraint that you can use that's going to keep you in that sort of lower intensity effort. So the benefits that people talk about with nose breathing, I guess the main one is it's it can help us uh, increase the oxygen uptake in our working muscles. So the the thing with it though is like it's one of those things that people think is so awesome that I guess the downside to it that I see is that people feel like when they're mouth breathing that they're doing it wrong or they're like I've even seen people um, post or have stuff on their website saying that mouth breathing when we're training can actually cause physical harm like that kind of stuff that people put out there about how that mouth breathing is actually harmful for us. Like 
that's the negative side to it. I think like it's like just getting more people outside and to exercise is a positive thing. Like if you're breathing through your mouth, that's probably like probably fine. If we're like placing all these other barriers to entry on it, like and making people feel like they're harming themselves by breathing through their mouth, like it's just it it's scaring more people away from being more active i think so that's just like the downside that i see to nose breathing so if every the thing about it is is everyone's going to be different so if you've never done nose breathing before you're probably not going to be able to maintain a very high intensity effort just nose breathing that's completely fine. You might find with practice that you can increase that. If you practice nose breathing at those lower intensities, you may find that your capacity will improve and you can maintain it at a higher intensity. But that's not for everyone. Like I've got clients who have had broken noses who like literally cannot breathe through their nose. Like even if they're just sitting on the couch doing nothing. So some people are going to be quite restricted and they're just not going to be able to breathe through their nose either at all or at a very high intensity. So everyone's going to have this point where you have to go to mouth breathing. It's a pretty simple equation. Like if you look at the size of your nose compared to the size of your mouth, you, there's no doubt you can get more more air volume in through our mouth. So in certain situations, breathing through our mouth is going to be more beneficial. So if you're something like an ultra runner where you're running for hours and hours and hours at a lower intensity, then like nose breathing might be a really good strategy for you. If you're racing a dirt bike where the intensity is way higher and things can spike up super high depending on what's actually going on, then there's going to be times when you're not going to be able to nose breathe and that's okay. The The number one thing, which is more important than whether you're breathing through your nose or breathing through your mouth is simply just being aware of your breathing. If you're aware of your breathing cycle and how deeply you're breathing, you're ahead of 99% of people because everyone knows that feeling of whether it's at the start of the race when nerves are high, intensity is high, or it's later in the race when you're fatigued and losing focus that you can literally forget to breathe. And that is what we want to avoid. We want to avoid not breathing. So when we forget to breathe or we breathe like super shallowly because we're not aware of our breathing, that's not an ideal situation. We want to be breathing as deeply and as fully inhaling and exhaling like we've got to get rid of all that waste as as much as possible with every breath so the strength and the depth of the exhale is very important as well just being aware of that means that you're aware of your breathing and you're probably doing a better job of your breathing than most people who are just fully not aware of their breathing at all when they're riding so I wouldn't be too stressed. Like the only tip I could give someone to maintain nose breathing when you're riding is to get one of those nose clips that actually goes on your nose to pull your your nostrils open a little bit so they're not compressed when you've got your goggles on. Other than that, it's like I wouldn't worry 
Like I wouldn't be too stressed out or worried if I couldn't maintain nose breathing all the time when I was riding. Like I definitely don't. Like I I I nose breathe quite a bit. Uh however, like there's going to be an intensity on the bike that you get to where you you have to go to mouth breathing. Like if you're just going for a trail ride and you're cruising along flowing and your heart rate's a bit low, it's probably pretty easy to nose breathe. But if you're in an actual race and intensity is really high and your heart rate can spike, then again, there's just going to be a point where you have to go to mouth breathing. And that's completely fine. So long as you've addressed your aerobic capacity in your training, like you should be able to tolerate that and, and recover your breathing fairly quickly. And like personally, I know like if I do have a spike, even when I go for a mountain bike ride or something, I like punch it up a hill. Like I'm not nose breathing when I get to the top of that hill to try and recover my breath. Like, you know, that feeling where you do like sort of gash yourself a little bit and you feel like you've, whether it's a sprint, it might be on the dirt bike or it might be on the mountain bike, even doing a rowing interval or something high intensity where you do like really gash yourself to recover yourself, to get your heart rate down and to recover your breathing from those really high intensity efforts. Like you're not nose breathing in that situation. Like that feeling where you're, you feel like you're lacking oxygen and you need a big gulp of air, big deep breath to sort of replenish the oxygen in your lungs. That to achieve that, like when I'm trying to do that, like I'm mouth breathing, it's like that big huff in through the mouth because you're going to get more volume in there and that fills your lungs right up. A few of those breaths, and then you might feel like you can go back to nose breathing and calm things down a little bit. But like I say, there's a there's a reason why we've got why we can breathe through our mouth, and that's to get more volume in, and in certain situations that's going to be beneficial. So yeah, to cap that one off, like nose breathing is awesome and it's definitely worthwhile practicing it, but I wouldn't be too stressed out if you cannot maintain it all the time when you're riding. Just being aware of your breathing when you're riding, you'll be kicking goals. Next question is a supplement question. Creatine. How important is creatine in daily life for training? So I guess creatine is one of those ones, there's been heaps of research into creatine. It's one of those ones that personally, I've used it a little bit. And it's one of those ones that I honestly don't feel any difference when I use it. So to me, the interesting, I guess the research that I've seen into it, the stuff that interests me is the research around brain health. So there is a lot of research out there that just shows a lot of benefits to brain health, brain function, just by supplementing creatine on a daily basis regularly. There's heaps of other benefits like training related, strength related as well. But honestly, I don't feel any of them when I use it. Uh, so the brain stuff like that kind of interests me, interests me. Obviously, I want to be as healthy uh, and high functioning in terms of my brain capacity for as long as I can possibly be as I age. So that stuff interests me. So honestly, I feel like if you're eating enough protein in your diet, uh, that's your like, that's obviously your lowest hanging fruit 
getting enough protein in. And I personally believe that the majority of that protein coming from high quality animal sources uh, that's more bioavailable for our body, then if you're doing that, then it's probably like a one percenter, the creatine thing. And I tell everyone with those types of things is just try it. Try not having it for a month and take note of how you feel and then try having it for a month and take note of how you feel. If you, do, if you don't notice any difference, then maybe it's not worth it. The, the thing with creatine is it's super cheap. Like it's one of the cheapest supplements out there that you get. So I guess it's one of those things that if there's no downside to it, if you don't feel any negative benefits to it or negative um, effects from it, and it's super cheap, like it's costing you like cents per serve, maybe it's worth just having it anyway. I don't know. It, again, it's just personal preference. Uh, but that would be my biggest tip is just try it with, try not having it, try having it, see if you notice any difference. Next one, another sort of uh, keeping on that nutritional flavor. This gentleman asked, he is eating, <clears throat> excuse me, he is eating 1600 calories a day for weight loss. Do I need to up my calories for race day? If so, how much? So the real short answer to this question is hell yes. You definitely need to increase your calories for race day if you're only eating 1600 calories a day. To me, 1600 calories is crazy low, especially for a male that's got a decent amount of, like say an average male guy that's 80 kilos. Average male guys like 75, 80 kilos. This gentleman is obviously trying to lose weight. So he's a bit bigger than that. My point is like 1600 calories is to me that screams personally. I've never put a male client on that many calories. Never. Most of my male uh, clients who are their goal is to drop body weight, their calories are around about somewhere like on the real low end, 22, but average sort of 2400 calories and they're still dropping body weight body fat, seeing the scale come down. So obviously it's different. Every individual is different. However, and that's not nutritional advice by any means. I'm just saying that to me, 1600 kilos is crazy low. So to figure that like my, I guess my theory with uh, weight loss is, and just this is like, even just from a personal perspective, like I want to be if the goal is to drop body fat and see the scale come down, I want to be eating as much food as I possibly can and still be achieving that goal. So if I can be eating, just as an example, if I can eat 2,400 calories and still still see my body weight coming down consistently week after week after week, I'm going to feel a lot more energized, a lot more recovered and potentially a lot healthier by eating 2,400 calories than I am eating 16. Like that's a 50% increase. And I'm not saying that that 
this particular gentleman could do that because I don't know his situation. Uh, and I'm everyone's numbers are going to be different. But I'm just saying that if you can still achieve your goal of dropping body fat and be eating a substantially higher amount of calories, you probably it's going to be probably going to be a lot more sustainable for you and you're going to feel a lot better about the whole process. So I personally I'd be playing if I was to give you any advice on that I would be playing with my maintenance amount of calories. So you can just go online and find any uh, calorie calculator and type in your body weight, um, your activity level, and your goals, whether you want to put on mass, whether you want to drop body fat, how fast you want to drop body fat. And that will give you, uh, it'll give, it should give you your maintenance calories that you would need to eat to sort of maintain your current body weight. And then it will give you um, a, a number that, will put you in a small calorie deficit to achieve the goal of a drop in body weight. So I would be figuring out what that maintenance number is. Um, and another way to figure that out is just keep increasing your calories slowly, like say 150 calories a week. Just keep increasing them slowly until you start to put on a little bit of weight. If you start to put on a little bit of weight, bring them back a hundred and and then see what happens with the scale. And potentially that's your maintenance number. Again, it's gonna be different for everyone. So with weight loss, there's two levers we can pull. We can either just eat less and create a calorie deficit, or we can move more. So there's basically those two levers like Weight loss just comes down to being in a small calorie deficit, which means we need to burn more calories than we eat. If we can do that consistently, we should see that our body weight comes down. So I'm, again, if we're thinking about, uh, if we're thinking about achieving that goal of trying to eat as much as we can, but still see the body weight come down, one of those, the other lever we can pull is more movement. So I know this particular gentleman that asked the question, his, he said he works at a desk. So he's working at a desk job. So he's got, I guess, a lower incidental movement. So my advice there would be trying to get more movement. And I'm not saying going to the gym and, and flogging yourself because when the more high intensity exercise we do, the more hungry we're going to feel. And most people will compensate with that by just eating more food and negating the calorie deficit. So walking is one of the best ways that you can just get a bit more movement into your day, but it's not going to be stressful and it's not going to like make you super hungry. So especially if you spend eight to 10 hours at a desk all day, getting some more walking into your day in some way is most likely going to be super beneficial for you. So a couple of ways you can do that is just like park your car further from the office, park 15 minutes away, walk 15 minutes to the office, walk 15 minutes back each day. That's a half an hour walk you can get in each day. Two would be, like this is going to depend on what your job is, but if you're doing like lots of phone calls at your desk, can you do those calls on a walk? 
Can you speak to people on the phone whilst you're walking, potentially? Or get a treadmill desk. Um, not, not a desk, but like a little treadmill that goes under your desk so you can have a stand-up desk and be ticking over on a treadmill. Like one of my buddies, he's a lawyer, so he spends, again, like eight, 10 hours at his desk every day. He's got a an old exercise bike, a spin bike, that he sits under his desk. So when he's like typing away on his computer, sending emails or he's on calls, he's just like spinning over on a spin bike, like at a super low intensity light. So that like I'm, all I'm getting at there is there are ways, there are ways to bring more movement into your day if you're committed enough to finding them. So that, that would be another way you could potentially eat more food and still see the, the drop in body fat that you're wanting to see. So to circle back and answer that question, 100% you want to be eating more calories than 1600 on race day and in race week, but you need to figure out what your maintenance number is. And then I'd just be eating your maintenance calories for three days prior and on race day and maybe even the day after to recover. Um, That would be my advice. Next one was, (laughs) funnily enough, I've had a couple of people... uh, asked me about this question in the last week. So it was, uh, I guess, a little bit funny that this question got sent in, but this particular question was about bum chafing, the dreaded bum chafing, how to overcome it. So this uh, particular gentleman sent in a quite detailed explanation of, of what he's actually gone through. I won't go into too much detail, but there was blood involved, which was pretty gruesome. So... He reckons he's tried everything to overcome the bum chafing, but to no avail. So I can only share what I do personally. It's not something that I've like had, like I've, I've had a bit of monkey butt every now and then, obviously at things like at races like Hatter where it's sand and you get some sand in there, definitely not uh, comfortable. So I've had a little bit but not to the extreme circumstance that uh, this particular gentleman had sounds like he's he's been through. So personally, I wear skins like you. I've got 2XU compression shorts. I wear my normal jocks, like I just wear cotton boxes, like Bonds boxes. I wear them under my compression shorts. So I guess I've got two layers there. That's it. That's what I do. I don't use any cream, any baby powder, nothing like that. I just run normal cotton boxes underneath my skins. And personally, that seems to work pretty well for me. My other two tips that I would be looking at, one's just super simple. Well, but they're both sort of the uh, similar, like just comes down to riding technique. One would be just standing up more for a start. And two, uh, when you're sitting, like obviously when you're sliding back and forth on the seat, that's when you're going to tend to get that. That's what's going to cause that chafe is your butt moving back and forth on the seat a lot. So obviously when you're standing, that's not happening. So it kind of, you negate that. And then when, when you are sitting, what you want to be thinking about is driving your foot pegs, your feet into the foot pegs. So when we're sitting on the bike, we never, we always want to be thinking that we're giving the bike input with our feet. So we're never just like 
sitting on the seat with all of our body weight in our ass, if that makes sense, in our in our butt. Like where it's almost like you're holding the bottom of a squat. So when you're actually sitting on the seat, you're pushing your feet down into the foot pegs, which you should feel like like hinges your hips forward a little bit and will get you into that seated attack position. So what's holding your body forward is actually your legs, not your butt on the seat. If you're very passive in your lower body and you're not locked onto the bike with your feet, when you twist that throttle and you're sitting down, you're going to slide backwards on the seat. So that potentially could be causing the shave. So they would be outside of the actual what you're wearing. And obviously, I can only advise on what I do. Um, I'd be looking at standing up more. And when you are sitting, driving your feet into the pegs so you're not actually sliding back and forth on the seat so much. So they'd be coming down. That'd be coming more back to looking at how you're riding. So maybe you need to get someone to video you when you're riding and see if you can tune that up a little bit and work on your riding technique. I would say that in itself would make a massive difference. Next question cramps how to overcome cramps even when hydration is on point so ask this particular fella a couple of questions and we've like we've established that his hydration is on point so that's obviously your first port of call well i think the first port of call or i guess you'd say like the lowest hanging fruit when we're like looking at cramps is simply are we hydrated enough so we kind of established that he, in this particular situation, he's hydrating enough, he's including enough electrolytes, but he still feels like that he's experiencing cramps at that like 60 to 90 minute mark in a cross country race. So my three things that I'd be looking at, one's another supplement thing is just that I generally recommend that all of my clients take is just a magnesium supplement so that's not around riding it's not before racing or anything like that it's just a daily supplement so again like magnesium uh, the more stressful our environment just in general whether it's training life work like all of that stress that comes into the bucket the more stress there is the more magnesium our body needs essentially so the higher stress environment the higher the magnesium requirements are so it's just one of those things that i recommend all my clients and i personally use a magnesium supplement um, every night i am a fan of magnesium glycinate the the brand i use is fusion health it's an australian one not sure if you can get it in the states um, but it's definitely available in australia and I'll have like three or four of those capsules each night. Um, sometimes I'll have like, I'll half the serve and have like two. If I do like a hard training session in the afternoon, I'd have like two caps after I train. And then I would have another two caps like about 30 minutes before I go to bed in the evening. So that's a potential one, maybe, would be uh, including a magnesium supplement on a regular basis. You could try that. Then simply, and these two kind of 
um, I guess they complement each other or could potentially cause each other. Um, and that is strengthening the affected area and riding technique. So firstly, strengthening the affected area. As an example, if you're cramping in your quads, then potentially that is uh, a sign maybe that the quads are a little bit deconditioned, potentially. It could also mean that maybe the quads, or should I say maybe the other supporting muscles are a little bit deconditioned, so that that's overloading the quads. Um, so maybe your hamstrings and your glutes are a little bit weak, which means that you're having to use your quads more, and that could potentially be the reason why. Or again, it could be the opposite of that. Your posterior chain is really strong and your quads are just a little bit underdone and they're not used to that intensity and that capacity and that's causing them to cramp. The riding technique side of that is, and again, it's very hard for me to say this without actually watching your ride or watching an individual ride, but maybe it's a riding technique issue. So the position, your attack position as an example Maybe you're not in a solid attack position with your hips back that is loading your posterior chain and your knees are a little bit forward, which places a lot more load in your quads, which causes them to fatigue quicker. So that's just one example. You could pretty much use that scenario on any, like maybe it's arms. Like I don't, the gentleman didn't say exactly where he's cramping. He just said he was cramping. So Maybe if it's like, if your arms are cramping, maybe it's because your lower body is a little bit weak or your riding technique is causing you to have to overuse your arms more. Like there's, there's I guess, a few factors that can lead to us overusing a particular muscle group when we're riding. So if you're experienced in cramps, you need to kind of figure out which one it is for you. Is it just because the particular muscle is weak? Is it because a supporting muscle is weak, which is causing you to overload that muscle? Or is it because your riding technique is maybe putting you into a position that's causing you to overload that particular muscle group? Again, like that's a really common one for lower back, like heaps of people that, you'll see will complain of lower back either pain or fatigue at the end of a of a three-hour cross-country race. Maybe that sort of presents in cramping or maybe it just presents in fatigue or, or a little bit of an, like ache or pain. So again, that could be any one of those three things that I just mentioned. It could be that your lower back's just weak and you need to strengthen your lower back. It could be that the surrounding muscles like your glutes and your hamstrings are weak and they're causing your, they're not taking enough of the load and they're causing your lower back to work harder than it needs to, which means it fatigues quicker. Or it could mean that your riding technique is a little bit off and you're actually in a position that's, you're not absorbing as much of that load with your legs, with your posterior chain and, and using your core and you're overloading lower back so any sort of fatigue or cramping 
I guess, issue like that, that's where my head sort of goes in those situations um, is firstly looking at the strength of the affected area and then the, su- the supporting muscle groups and then riding technique. So I'd be looking at addressing those and then seeing how you go in that uh, if you notice benefits there. Hope you got some value out of those questions today. Uh, again, super grateful for everyone that sent the questions in. I We will do another one uh, coming up to October. So another few weeks, once we get into October, we'll do another Q&A episode for anyone that has any questions. Again, thank you all. If you've listened this far, I appreciate you and we'll see you on the next episode.